Welcome to Green Tea, sustainable stories from Bowdoin's campus and beyond. My name is Holden Turner. And I'm Juliette Min. Green Tea is a production of the Office of Sustainability at Bowdoin College, sharing the perspectives of students, staff, and community members. This week, we welcome Shreya Srinath to Green Tea. Dr. Srinath, who is a professor of anthropology here at Bowdoin College, hosted us in his driveway one afternoon for the conversation you're about to hear. We discussed his path in anthropology and the class he now teaches about toxic environments as they relate to critical discussions of humans and ecologies going on today. So, we're so excited to talk with you today. Um, so would you mind just starting by introducing yourself and what your role at Bowdoin is? Yeah, my name is uh, Shreya Srinath. I'm an assistant professor uh, of anthropology at Bowdoin. So I'm a, a sociocultural anthropologist, Within that, I'm an ecological anthropologist. I teach classes on environment, ecology, environmental justice, this era that many people are calling the Anthropocene, all of which we might talk about during this conversation. So that's who I am. So can you, can you start off by just telling us how you got into anthropology? Where, what was the entry point for you? Sure, yeah. yeah. Well, um, much like Juliet, I was a um, economics major oh. <laughs> in, in, during my BA. And uh-huh. it's, you know, I think, um, I don't know what other interviewees have to say about how they ended up where they were. But mine was a very sort of convoluted route to get where I am today. But I think a lot of it has to do with, in my own life, I've seen various various historical contexts and so- social contexts and ecological contexts that folks often read in history books or relegate to certain periods that came before. I've kind of lived through all of them okay. in, 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 in strange ways, um, uh, even though I'm not that old as, <laughs> as that, might, that sentiment might, might make me sound. So I was, I was born in a small town in South India called Shumoga. It's in, it's in, it's in the state of Karnataka. Right? And my uh, family on both sides had been peasants for as long as we remember. You know? And if you go back uh, just one generation before my father, and to some level my grandfather um, on my, father, my paternal side, and my maternal side, know same thing you would already enter into a world that is scarcely understandable to many of us which is the world the ecological world of the peasant and the Indian peasant on top of that we were including me um, and my parents we were all first generation urbanites so I grew up in the city of Bangalore until I was 11 years old and then we immigrated to this country and I grew up in the American South. You know, in many ways I've seen rural life in India. I've seen urban life in India. And this was also the time when India was opening up economically in the 90s to uh, the larger world because before the 90s, India had not necessarily liberalized its economy. They were starting to, but a lot of the kind of consumer products that we're familiar with were, were not available you know, people were still watching state-run television, um, um, listening to state-run radio mostly, but these things started, you know, these sort of forum, fora started opening up 
know, and for the first time we started seeing consumer products. And then from there, um, you know, we moved to this country right before September 11th. So I think these are the kind of fissures in my own life, you know, where your identity becomes split in all sorts of ways. And it's not necessarily even about me as a person, but the kind of context I was surrounded by that were constantly evolving for various reasons, you know, that got me interested in anthropology. I was interested in economics for the same reason, because I was interested in how folks made value in their lives, how they traded materials, how commodities were made, um, because there's glimmers of my life, you know, my grandparents and my parents would remember a lot more of it, but I remember glimmers of the, the last sort of life ways of of a non-commoditized world of the peasant, where you really couldn't go to, for example, uh, my grandpa's village on both sides and uh, use money for many things. Things were still traded, you know, you, you got ginger by trading a sack of rice, for example, or a sack of sorghum or finger millet, or the things that money was were, was used for was things like clothes and school school material, but it hadn't really percolated to even food items and most things that people used, you know? Yeah. So these are the kind of things that got me into anthropology, I guess, is because I was, in, in strange ways, exposed to both the possibilities and limitations of human life by just experiencing all of these various um, uh, spheres of existence, yeah. right? <laughs> if that makes sense. It does. So I've never taken an anthropology course before, so I'm curious how anthropology, the study of anthropology, uh, got you to, or helped you kind of make sense of these different experiences? That's a great question. And I think for the longest time, I had this idea that um, humanity was heading in a particular direction. Many people have many names for that direction. You know? Some people call it progress. Some people call it modernity or coming into modernity or becoming modern. Um, some people call it, you know, um, going from a sort of religious or spiritual existence to a more secular one, right? But I had all of these sort of ideas in my head that 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 humanity was supposed to kind of head towards that particular direction, particular direction resembles something like North America or Western Europe, you know? Um, And I think anthropology really helped me think about the ways in which that's not the case, that we're not necessarily heading in any particular direction, that a lot of what we say about the kind of trajectory we're going in, even as quote-unquote enlightened, secular, scientifically-minded, rational individuals, they're mythical, you know, because when you actually get down to what progress means, when you get down to what modernity means, they're ephemeral. You can't really point to any single thing that right. is that names progress and sort of specifies it, right? So I think that's what anthropology made me think about, right? And I remember as an economics student, I had read, I'd read a... Um, very early article by an anthropologist named Marshall Solis. The article was called Stone Age Economics. And in that, I remember um, as a young undergraduate reading that Paleolithic people worked a lot less. 
according to this anthropologist than many modern individuals do. And that just kind of blew my mind, the fact that something that was relegated to the past could be evaluated in a way that made the presence seem more diminished yeah. than what came before. And that just completely threw threw my head on it, into a spin, you know. I think that's what that's what got me more and more interested in anthropology. There's a there's a sort of like low level anarchism <laughs> that underlies the best anthropological work, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And of course, uh, the other side of it was colonization. The fact of colonization, what, how we had experienced it in different ways, right? Yeah. In, in, in many ways, the myths that we are concerned with and that, that take up most of our lives and anxieties and frustrations have to do with the, the sort of catastrophic event of European colonization of the rest of the world, right? A lot of it was also tied to things, you know, these weren't things that were abstract. They were also conceptual things, but they were also things that were going on in our lives, you know, in my family's lives. And, because we were people that parts of my family had non-violently resisted British occupation. There's yeah. fringe portions of my family who violently resisted British occupation. And these are stories that I grew up learning, you know, or hearing through the grapevine. <laughs> and for some parts of my family, it was like nothing changed. And they were just called to school one day and they took down the British flag and put up the Indian flag, you know. So there's all of these different responses in my own family to colonization. And then somehow, somebody in my family thought it would be a good idea to leave this newly liberated country and come here. And so that just threw me, you know, that just kind of threw me into a rut. You know, why did mm -hmm. we come? For what, to what end? What, mm -hmm. pro right. what progress were, were we looking for mm -hmm. when right. we left that country and came here? And I still don't know the answer to any of this. Okay. It's complicated, you know? Yeah. But I think anthropology gives us a way, a language, to speak about these things in ways that don't have a prefigured goal in mind. If that makes sense. It does, it does. Yeah. Now, I'm, I'm curious as to where the environment fits in, or yeah. the ecology fits in. Well, I clearly we can put value on economic resources and and some of the classes that I've taken in my environmental studies major have tried to do so in that way. But I'm I'm curious as to what you're talking about with, with this uh, ecological anthropology. Ecological anthropology is many strains. Sure. And there's a danger to looking at environment and ecology in a particular way. And there are political choices to be made with regards to how you cut up the distinction between man and nature. And I think this is where a certain type of ecological anthropology that is also simultaneously political becomes meaningful. Right. And so what I'm trying to say by this is, you know, you go outside of the Western secular framework. Mm -hmm. The first, one of the first things that gets thrown out of the window, if you just, if you just go a little bit outside of this very circumscribed sort of almost suffocating worldview is the world, first thing that gets thrown out of the window is this idea that there is a human being here and this is where the human being starts, this is where the human being ends, and this is where nature begins. And this whole 
dichotomy has sort of percolated from Western religious traditions into scientific thought in many ways. And what I mean by that is, in many ways, we are confronting what many ge geologists now call the Anthropocene, which is a term that some of you may have heard of, which is, um, which is a claim that geolo ge geologists are making uh, where, in which humanity has become such a powerful force on Earth that we have become geological, by which I mean, or by which they mean, we have garnered the capacity to completely sort of terraform the Earth. Yeah. Irrevocably. Mm -hmm. Right? So, this is an interesting anthropological problem. This is why I, thinking about this, I became a sort of ecological anthropologist, right? Mm -hmm. So, a lot of us are confronting what we should do um, um, with climate change, the kind of drastic changes that it will that we, that will engender um, um, in the coming decades, right? Yeah. The, the Anthropocene is a very interesting problem because it's one where we are seen as extremely too powerful, almost, right? <laughs> to terraform the Earth, right? But also, we are, and you feel it in your bones. You know, all of us do. This is a political moment. We're completely powerless to do anything about it, you know? Yeah. So it's interesting from a conceptual perspective to think of this term um, as something that uh, frames humans as both extremely powerful, almost godly, and completely powerless to do anything about climate change, right? And why I'm bringing all of this up is, long story short, I think this is a limit point to the Western imagination that separated man and nature because there's something problematic here. There's a fundamental <laughs> paradox. Right. And in what ecological anthropology looks at is how different societies all over the world and across history and across space you know, mm -hmm. have imagined our fundamentally more than human beings and how they've carved it up in different ways, what different cosmologies are how we can redefine the human. So we are not in this position that we're in, this paradoxical position, where we're so powerful that we're killing ourselves and everything around us, but we're so powerless to avert this mass extinction that's coming, right? Yeah. So it's, it's, it's a shift in imagination that's required of us. And that's what the term ecological anthropology, not just as a discipline, but as a, as a concept, what it means is, if anthropology is study of the human, ecologizing the study of the human um, is about thinking about how we're already more than ourselves. Perhaps I can explain what I mean by more than human. So when you think about our bodies, you think about it very carefully from a scientific perspective, from a social perspective, political perspective, it becomes very hard to sort of actually understand where we end and where something else other than us begins. When you think about the fact that much of our bodies are made of colonies of bacteria, the microbiome that inhabits our gut, right? the fact that we're not so much static, but we're moving, we're almost, we're constantly inhaling air, we're drinking water and beverages, we're eating food, and we're expelling and excreting all of these things, right? We're, we're machines in motion in many ways, if you yeah. want to think about it in a mechanistic way. Um, so we're always more than human. 
Um, and what's interesting about the way our environments are working these days is a lot of our ecologies are being weaponized. Yeah. In the sense that if in the 20th century most social theorists were thinking about fascism versus democracy, communism versus capitalism, right? right. Um, governments doing something to people, to their, mm-hmm. to, to, to their subjects, right? Uh, not that any of those problems have gone away, but they've been sort of amended by a, an extra problem, I think, uh, mm-hmm. more and more as we come into this kind of ecological consciousness, which is that how power is used by governments, by institutions, by by almost myth-making machines yeah. of modernity, right? To actually exert um, power by weaponizing our environments, by weaponizing our ecologies. Mm-hmm. When you think of how natural disasters create new inequities, or yeah. even how natural disasters are seen as quote-unquote just natural yeah. and have no human involvement in it at all, right? Yeah. When you think of any kind of natural disasters equally a social and political disaster and, and social political crisis. So more and more you, we are inhabiting a world where our, um, our sort of more than human being, the fact that we are a meshwork of our ecological relations is being weaponized against us the sense that there's there's institutions and um, forces that want to demarcate, falsely demarcate, well, this is where you end and this is where nature begins. Yeah. And then almost say, well, this is the fact that you are being destitute, the fact that you're being marginalized, or the fact that you're privileged is a matter of nature, and it has nothing to do with politics and society. Right, there's no choices behind it. Exactly. Whatsoever. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Very so cool. that's what makes me interested in ecological anthropology. Because yeah. it, it ties in questions that I was personally concerned with questions of colonizations, question of human possibility and limitations. Mm-hmm. And it really kind of grounds it in a very embodied way to yeah. talk about a whole range of issues. Well, I think that's a good transition into the questions that we have about your fieldwork. Because, um, so Julia and I both read a short piece that, that you wrote um, about sanitation workers and tongues, uh-huh. mother tongues. Yeah. We want to ask you, how, how did you choose the sanitation system as a, a field site? Yeah, much like race is a sort of founding issue of um, North American society and yeah. many other places in, in, in Europe and America. In the same way, we have an additional problem in South Asia because we have something called caste and the caste system. The caste system was was seen as something by a lot of Indians as well as many other uh, South Asian countries as something that would disappear with modernity because caste was something that was superstitious. It was based on hierarchies. That had to do with purity and pollution. And as soon as India liberated itself from, um, from, from Great Britain, it would develop a modern constitution, it would develop modern schools, and it would have a modern civil society. It would be a functioning democracy, right? And if any lingering caste-like phenomena existed, it would kind of disappear. That was the assumption that many people made. Well, there was a problem with that. And in many ways, 
the Indian constitution from that very legal perspective is one of the most progressive constitutions in the world because it flat out ab abolishes untouchability. It says yeah. there cannot be any discrimination based on caste, creed, etc. Right? The reality is society is very different. And, and, and I entered this from a sort of ecological perspective because I think a lot of the sort of resurgence of caste power in India and um, for many of you who might not be so aware of what the recent political developments in India for the first time not for the first time but in, in significant ways that do not have much precedent we are really confronting the threat of Hindu nationalism a Hindu majoritarianism in a country that seeks to undo all of the gains whatever whatever little that we had achieved after independence, mm -hmm. right? So caste powers come back with a vengeance in the sense that much like the kind of structural racism that exists in this country, structural casteism has existed and it's becoming more and more overt in many ways um, instead of kind of fading away as was right. assumed. And I asked, you know, ecologically, why might this be the case? Because this is such a huge question to tackle from so many angles and I wanted to do it from a very specific angle you know okay and which was I asked you know this is a city where I grew up and this the, the kind of commodities that I was that I was exposed to for the first time I saw plastics come through oh. and for the first time I saw new forms of waste coming through when I was when I was growing up right and because a lot of kind of waste that we had before was mostly organic it kind of decomposed sure and more and more i saw these new forms of waste on the street not rotting and i saw sanitation workers at the same time who were state employees before just as the indian economy liberalized and new commodities came in made of new materials uh, municipal services were privatized in both direct and indirect ways. And the way it happened in, in Bangalore, the city where I did my field work, was that municipal services contracted out solid waste management to, to local contractors, right? And who are these local contractors? They were landlords, um, uh, sort of dominant caste landlords who held a lot of land in the city and around the city. And when the city expanded, a lot of them sold off their land and they bought fixed capital in terms of they bought the first compactor trucks, they bought the first sort of tipper autos, which are these kind of small tuk-tuk uh, style um, vehicles that, that sanitation workers use to pick up garbage. Because the streets are much narrower than the okay. ones that you find in the U.S. So this is all infrastructure needed to process this new type of waste. New stream. type of waste, right? Yeah, okay. And so those contractors, who do they hire as the, new, the sort of workers. They hire workers who had worked on their land for generations and for, you know, for, you know, for perhaps hundreds of years, even though there's no written history on all of this, right? And these were folks who were historically landless and who were historically from dominated caste communities who were seen as quote unquote untouchable, right? And this is, I say, quote-unquote untouchable because not everybody agrees on who and who 
is kind of touched for right. a different amount of perspective. Right. But the, the sort of the dominant cast certainly saw these these folks as as untouchables and uh, as coming from untouchable communities. But basically, what historically they were is they were they were peasants without land, and they were mm-hmm. peasants who were close to the soil. So you think about it on almost a a level of um, the plantation, so to speak. Yeah. Because that is something, a landscape that is familiar to many Americans, right? You can imagine uh, a house in the middle of a large farm where there's a dominant caste family and that person's overseeing hundreds of workers, right? Mm-hmm. Who's work, who are working very, very closely to the soil. They hold all of the agricultural knowledge, but none of the power. Mm-hmm. And they know how to do leather work. They know how to decompose dead animals and manure. They're the ones that are doing the sort of metabolic processing of peasant life. And in their new role as city sanitation workers, these workers are doing the same kind of metabolic processing as they did in the agricultural fields. Yeah. But they're doing it with plastics. They're doing it, in, um, they're doing it by clearing sewage lines. They're doing it by handling food. Right? Yeah. So same kind of logic that that manifested in peasant life has been almost kind of seamlessly translated mm-hmm. into something that is quote-unquote modern, something right. that is supposed to make caste So long story short, why I started looking at waste from a sort of conceptual perspective is you look at toxic um, environments, you look at waste, these are in many ways the sort of hairball that modernity threw up, you know, that progress threw up, that capitalism threw up. Right. If it wasn't for that, we wouldn't actually be able to see, if it wasn't for waste and waste ecology, we won't actually be able to see these sort of cracks in the system. And what are the kind of contradictions that will that will actually make the entire system probably uh, more and more dysfunctional as we go forward. Right. So that's why I got interested in waste. Partially, mm-hmm. it had to do with, with, uh, with, with caste. Partially, it had to do with colonization because the interesting thing about a lot of these mechanisms, municipal laws or sewage lines, a lot of them were developed by the British, and mm-hmm. in each iteration, they were deeply underfunded, and they always required human interventions. So you imagine sewage lines, for example, that are very wide in North America. They're a little less wide in Europe, but they're still very wide. Mm-hmm. Imagine narrower sewage lines serving a major, densely populated urban metropolis in South Asia. That's yeah. what the British left us with, uh, and that's what they said. That's that's when they said, you know, you know, carry on with your modern life. You know, there we had diminished infrastructures. And we required those kind of sewage lines required constant human intervention. Who were the folks that were intervening? They were often peasants without any capital. Yeah. Right. Gotcha. So we learned that you were teaching a toxic cities class uh-huh. this semester. Can you tell us more about that and maybe um, how your research also kind of plays into how you how you teach the class or yeah. what's on the syllabus? Sure. Oh, we start. Did you just see yes. that go by? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Very strange. Okay. That, was a, that was a pickup truck with two Confederate flags on the back. Yeah. So, um, 
speaking of toxic things. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, it's, it's a very good question because oftentimes I think young people and older folk or people in the middle, I guess, like me, we have a sort of, we have a sort of unbridled pessimism, it seems like, for what is to come out of this world, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, even with the kind of situation I just described, it's a very dark situation. And it's very hard to discern how we might be able to get out of this this muck that threatens ways of life. And, 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 and it's going to threaten more and more ways of life if we keep going down this direction, right? right? And uh, more and more, quote-unquote, toxic environments um, will will emerge out of out of uh, capital accumulation. And so I was just thinking about the class and I was just thinking about, you know, what would be most beneficial for students to understand about um, studies of toxicity. And one thing I thought of was actually toxicity can be seen in two ways. It can be seen as something to control and contain, kind of like what we do with waste dumps. Right. You know? And... Um, you know, uh, and we ensure that it's contained for the near future, and we do everything to kind of just, just not let it have any kind of, not let it leach out into anything. Yeah. And there, and I thought, you know, that's a very unhelpful, anxious way of looking <laughs> at the kind of mess we've created for ourselves. Yeah. Right? And really, I was inspired by the work. Um, in feminist um, literature, feminist uh, studies of science and technology, mm-hmm. and feminist anthropology, who um, are really, in many ways, um, made me think about what reproductive justice means outside of our biological kin. Mm-hmm. What a sort of more than human e- reproductive justice means, you know? Like, what does it mean to, um, as folks that are somewhat modern, um, Although I would argue that we are we are not modern at all if we think about it, um, but as somebody who think of, thinks of ourselves as modern, how can we connect with our ancestors, and how can we connect with future generations that are a little bit more help, that are a little bit more helpful than containment and the anxiety around the containment of toxicity, right? And what a, a theorist, um, a scholar named Donna Haraway led me on to is this idea of rather than thinking about environmental disaster is something to contain if we think of it as compost for new forms of life new relationships it produces something that is a crisis into an opportunity to remake everything that we're that we know and what it also gets us away from and this is what I really wanted to um, get at the course on toxicities and this is what I learned from anti-caste activists in India. Mm-hmm. It gets us away from like the kind of rut we're stuck in, where more and more of us, especially privileged, the privileged few that we are, you know, um, that who can afford organic food or organic this and that, mm-hmm. we're more and more concerned about the purity of our own bodies at all cost to others in our environment, right? Mm-hmm. And psychologically, sociologically are just trying to constantly and anxiously purify ourselves. Yeah. 
And you can kind of see all these kind of politics play out in COVID in interesting ways, right? And I just thought, again, this is a reassertion of the kind of boundaries between man and nature, human and nature, that got us into this place, you know, in the first instance. So I just thought, you know, it would be an interesting way to think about, for example, we are studying um, an industrial disaster that happened in India in the 1980s um, that was um, that was centered around a, a, an insecticide plant exploding and releasing noxious gases. And the, the company that was operating the plant was Union Carbide, which mm-hmm. is based in West Virginia. And we're reading um, um, that case. We're reading Chernobyl and the nuclear mm-hmm. fallout there. And last but not least, we're reading a book on mushrooms. And this is what we end our class with, a book by an anthropologist called Anna Singh, called Mushroom at the End of the World. Um, and, it, and the subtitle is On the Possibility of Life in Capitalist Ruins. So we're going from talking about disaster, talking about how do, how do we turn these sort of sites, very toxic sites, and sites that have been blasted by the kind of modern ecologies that we have um, proliferated, how do we turn that around to create something new? And Anna Singh looks at this by looking at the very simple fact of how does a mushroom grow and what kind of network a mushroom or any kind of fungus comes into as it's growing and what kind of network can humans come into to flourish among fungal networks right yeah and basically in many ways what she's saying is ecology has the best answer a best the best antidote to uh, modern progress which is that Rather than thinking about life as something that goes ahead relentlessly, mm-hmm. like on a treadmill, right? Yeah. If we just think about it as something that is regenerative, that is premised on turning dirt that is kind of useless, slowly turning it over so it becomes more and more productive, mm-hmm. so that more and more sort of fungal networks can be can be proliferated, so that carbon from the atmosphere is fixed into the soil so that you know there's an alternative to wage work as our environments become opportunities for us to make make a living yeah um might we be able to rather than having you know in the 20th century we a lot of revolutionaries had a catastrophic vision of how to transform capitalism through revolt through this break, you know? Yeah. And is there another way to think about that transition from capitalism to something else that is a little bit more gradual, that erodes capitalism, but also feeds us? Right. She also talks about, for instance, how sites that are devastated, like Fukushima, for example, Mm -hmm. and um, are, are really presenting us with challenges with regards to how we think about human life are also giving us new ways to symbolically communicate with each other, technologically communicate with each other. So in her other work, she talks about how they've led to new community organization efforts 
we have young people around Fukushima going around with uh, with indicators checking what the radiation levels are yeah. and ensuring that people can gradually come in yeah this takes a community effort and they're they're forging kin not biological kin but what Donna Haraway thinks of as odd kin you know yeah and they're making new forms of community and is there a way that we can sort of scale this up right you know yeah and that is really kind of what I'm interested in teaching with this class and this is what I mean um, you you cited the sort of one of the descriptions <laughs> where I said how do toxic relations uh, make otherwise habitations possible right? mm-hmm. these are the kind of otherwise habitations yeah. that we can come into by thinking about how we relate our bodies to our environment how we relate to each other mm-hmm. and how none of this necessarily has has to have a prefigured goal in mind we have to feel good and meaningful here and now yeah and that's good enough you know and that's hopeful in a way yeah yeah very much so very cool. Um, well, I think we'd like to wrap up this episode by asking the question that we ask to everyone, which is, what does sustainability mean to you? Well, there's two kinds of sustainabilities, <laughs> or maybe more more kinds, but sure. I'll mention two. You know, when you ask, what does sustainability mean to me, um, I think we have to turn that question around anthropologically mm-hmm. and ask, what does sustainability mean to different people that you encounter? Right. right? And much like modernity, much like progress, um, um, sustainability has become a catch-all term. Yeah. So what it means to me is that there are certain systems that we need to sustain. We need to have uh, cleaner waterways. We need to have, very importantly, better soils. Um, We need to have soil regeneration. We need to sustain uh, mycorrhizal networks, fungal networks beneath the soil so carbon can be sequestered and, and, and plants can flourish and animals can flourish. We need to um, have sustainable discourse a- across national borders you know, and make them more porous. Uh, at the same time, we need not sustain the system of endless growth anymore. Um, this idea that we have somehow um, imbibed the myth of modern society, which capitalism has given us, where unless we grow at 2% compound growth, there's something catastrophic that will happen to our lives. That is the entire system that we are sort of, that is underpinning our lives right yeah. now. For me, that is not sustainable. And that system need not be sustained. So I think we have to think politically and ecologically about what systems are sustainable and what systems are not, and get rid of the ones that are killing us as, as, as a species and are killing the very small biosphere we depend on to live on this earth. And we need to sustain other systems that will help us overcome the system, the, the, this, this, this sort of economic and political apparatus that we have somehow um, been cornered into. If that makes sense. It does make sense to me. How do you feel, Julia? Yeah, no, that, wow. (laughs) Thank you. That's a lot of food for thought. Thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, you provided so much, so much for us to think about. And it's definitely been a pleasure to talk to you today. Absolutely. Hopefully we can take one of your classes sometime in the future before we graduate.
Yeah. And hopefully more more folks can come in and have some tea in, <laughs> yes. in my driveway as we're doing right now. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah. You've been so welcoming, so thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. This was such a pleasure, and I'm so glad to have met both of you. Over the course of the spring 2021 semester, Green Tea will be sharing stories from students, staff, and community members around Bowdoin College. Stay tuned for more episodes, and thanks for listening.